Good evening. Good evening. It's what a pleasure to be with you, you guys. And so, here, guys, guys, listen to this, listen to this. We're taking back the word trans, because tonight we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's, see? Isn't it funny that it's like everything that, that Satan inverts and perverts just comes originally from God? Like, the devil has no original stories. All he can do is copycat, invert, and pervert. Of course, the rainbow is an example of this, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, before, before we get into everything tonight, <clears throat> I've only had one espresso, so don't worry, we'll be good. Um, I, so, when I come here, I just got to tell you, I, I feel like Bilbo Baggins sometimes. I, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. And um, it's just, uh, yeah, you're not sure what that meant, huh? It's just, it's just wonderful to be here with you. As you guys uh, may know, I was born and raised in Southern California, homeschooled through eighth grade, went to Whittier High School. Um, I've been a pro-life activist since I was a fetus. Uh, my mother was the, uh, yeah, it's true, follow the science. Uh, my, my mother was the director of a pregnancy center while pregnant with me. And because it's just a blob of tissue and every part of the baby is part of the mother, therefore every part of me was part of my mother. So every baby my mother saved while directing a pregnancy resource center, I saved. Uh, follow the science. Um, I've said it before that um, Pastor Jack Hibbs, if I, could, if I could bottle his moral and spiritual clarity and courage and inject it like a booster shot into the arms of American pastors, I could end abortion in this country in two years. Um, <clears throat> so, but actually, it's a booster shot, so it probably wouldn't work. <laughs> so, anyways, good to be back uh, with uh, my second favorite church, of course, uh, Pastor Rob McCoy was my pastor, and we built the pro-life ministry at Godspeed Calvary Chapel, so I always have to say they're my favorite church. Uh, but Jack Hibbs is, is my earthly hero, and it's just wonderful to be back here with you guys. Hey, raise of hands. Did anyone come to Love Life California that we did here like a year and a half ago, January 2022? Awesome, great. Hey, well, actually, I'm actually glad that most of you aren't, <laughs> didn't, because uh, that way you won't get bored with me. It's like, here he goes again. So anyways, so California, what are we up to now, huh? What the heck is going on? Um, the, uh, the slippery slope uh, conspiracy theorists um, have been right about literally everything. In fact, they were uh, far too conservative in their predictions in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. So let's see, California, uh, attempting to define an LGBT couple's inability to reproduce as infertility, to give them insurance-paid access to fertility treatments, including artificial insemination of pregnancy surrogates. In other words, a man will acquire the right to a woman's uterus and the ability to purchase children through surrogacy, and this is being called fertility equality. Have you noticed that the left just labels whatever new kooky iteration that they want in the culture of death as equality? Marriage equality, reproductive equality, and now it's fertility equality, because you're in a non-procreative romantic relationship, and so we need to defy human nature to give you insurance subsidies for your fertility treatment by renting that woman's womb and buying that guy's sperm and maybe getting her egg and putting it together in a woman so that you can call yourself a mommy. Welcome to California. Let's see. Um, California is pushing two bills right now that would let 12-year-olds uh, pump themselves full of chemically castrating drugs and chop off their genitals without parental consent if, 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 if follow the science professionals feel it would be harmful to inform the parents. That would be AB 665. Oh, here's another one. And to allow the state to take your gender-confused minor from you if you as the parent won't use their pronouns or don't support the transition and a 
fall of a science professional feels that your child's mental and emotional health is best served through that gender-affirming healthcare. By the way, gender-affirming healthcare is a euphemism for um, chopping off a, a child's genitals and pumping them full of chemically castrating drugs. If, in case you've ever heard that term, gender-affirming healthcare, that's what that means, okay? It's like calling rape lovemaking. Um, that would be AB 957. All right, what else do we got here going on, Newsom Lini? Um, AB, AB 598, uh, pu uh, pushing a bill to require sex education teachers to teach students how and where to obtain an abortion without parental consent. And AB 315 would enable activists to sue pro-life pregnancy centers and churches who share what they would define as false and misleading information. Fact check, <laughs> misinformation, malinformation. Did you hear the new one last year? They came up with a new one, it's called malinformation. Do you know what that means? It means things that are factually true, but in the way they're contextualized by those conservatives is really damaging to the liberal orthodoxy. No, I'm not, I'm not joking, that's what malinformation mal means now. Okay, so does anyone feel, am I the only one that feels like none of this insanity makes sense anymore except through a theological lens? Good, am I, uh, oh, no, okay, let's try that again. Am I the only one that feels like none of this insanity makes sense except through the lens of theology, Christianity, and spirituality? Okay, good, good. So you got red-pilled by the Holy Spirit, huh? Good, that's why you're here tonight. Um, the rotten fruit of Marxism, communism, racism, eugenics, overpopulation, and the sexual revolution was always strictly a warring of religions. What if I told you that man is fundamentally a religious being? He is a worshiping kind of being, and so if you remove Christianity, why does he say, worship no other gods before me? What's he saying? He's saying that you're a, you're a worshiping kind of being. And so if you don't worship me, you will worship something else. What if I told you that man's heart is an idol factory? It will turn anything and everything into an idol. I've said before that the culture war was always a proxy war for a far deeper spiritual war. But that's not my idea. In fact, I heard someone else say that. I, I'm not the first one to observe, and I won't be the last, that all human conflict is ultimately theological. Cardinal Manning, the second Archbishop of Westminster from 1865 to 1892, mentored and had a friendship with Hilaire Belloc. Hilaire Belloc was one of the most famous English writers and poets of the early 20th century. He was a political activist and satirist. And, and Cardinal Manning once mentoring and told a young Hilaire Belloc that all human conflict is ultimately theological. What did he mean by this? He meant that, that when you have conversations about politics, within that conversation are packed layers of assumptions about applied morality. Are you following me? Because what is politics but applying moral principles to the law? Because it's a constitutional republic and we all got to get along and figure out how to live together. But when you talk about applied morality, aren't you actually assuming things about morality in general, moral principles in general? But if you talk about morality in general, you're, you're actually assuming certain things about anthropology. What does that mean? What does it mean to be human? Can we know anything about, are we distinct from the animals or, or was Darwin right and we're just really just evolved apes? But when you talk about anthropology, you're assuming certain things about ontology, how we know things. And ultimately, when you talk about ontology, you're assuming certain things about theology. When you zoom out from our, our seemingly confusing and divided political debates are packed in layers of assumptions that all trace back to the distinctiveness <clears throat> of the Christian religion. So reflecting on this years later, he, 
he's reflecting when he was told at 20 years old that all human conflict is ultimately theological. And years later, Hilaire Belloc had this to say. It's fascinating. It's the, it's the platform into our time together this evening. And what, what do I mean by this phrase? He said, this saying of Cardinal Manning's, which I carried away with me, somewhat bewildered, that all human conflict is ultimately theological. That is, that all the wars and revolutions and all decisive struggles between parties of men, they actually arise from a difference in morals and transcendental doctrine. This was utterly novel to me. To a young man, the saying was without meaning. I would have almost said nonsensical, except that I could not attach the idea of folly to Cardinal Manning. But as I grew older, it became a searchlight with the observation of the world and, and with my continuous reading of history. It came to possess for me a universal meaning so profound that it reached to the very roots of political action, so extended that it covered the whole. In other words, Hilaire, and if, you ever, if you ever want to scratch your head and be like, I got to read that book five more times, read Hilaire Belloc. It's like reading Chesterton or C.S. So it's like, <laughs> and he's saying this phrase, which was told by him, by Cardinal Manning at 20 years old, became so profound, it became a searchlight and the lens through which he saw the entire world. And I suggest that we need to do the same together tonight. If we're to understand the insanity of these times we're living in and maybe find a way to get back out of it. What did C.S. Lewis once say? Um, we all want progress. But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. So the culture of death today is actually not the progressive secular moral revolution. It is the regressive secular moral revolution whose ideas are not more modern and progressive than the founding fathers. They're far more regressive and ancient. All human conflict is ultimately theological. The entire secular moral revolution that has birthed our current culture of death and all the kooky beliefs and behaviors can be viewed and understood through the lens of religion. Specifically that of an old Christian heresy, actually. Did you know that? An old Christian heresy actually animates the entire secular moral revolution today and all their new weird sacraments and liturgies. So for the pastors who refuse to preach against this culture of death, and mobilize and wake up their church. They're not refusing to engage a alternative politics. They're refusing to preach against false religion, which animates the entire culture of death that we're in today. That heresy is called Gnosticism or Gnostic dualism. Uh, here's, here's, a, here's another easy one, body self-dualism. So, so body self-dualism, what does that mean? There's the duality between the body and the self body self-dualism or Gnostic dualism. And this is an old heresy that the church labeled a heresy centuries ago of old Christian Gnostics who treated the human being as a bifurcated entity. In other words, we're not ensouled human beings, both body and soul. We, we have a body and a mind, and the real person is the mind, and the body's just a shell for the real metaphysical, untangible spiritual being. That, like, these are not new ideas. Like, the church said, yeah, that's bad, that's heresy, wrong teaching, false teachers, don't listen to that. And now this old heresy is progressively entering all of our culture today and helps explain all of the kooky things like homosexuality, like the LGBTQIA2 plus my name is Legion, like abortion <laughs> and transhumanism today. It's, it's the same old weird kooky theory. And the, the, the main idea that, that binded the old Gnostics together, I don't have time to get into the whole history, but was that the material world 
was cre created mistakenly through an evil like demigod of sorts, a, a being that was willfully ignorant of the good and true God. And so the only way to triumph over this evil physical world is by obtaining secret knowledge or gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis, secret knowledge, gnosis, Gnosticism, Gnostic dualism. This view that treats the human being as a split thing between body and mind. So listen, listen, listen. If the physical world was made by an evil God, then all material is also warped. Is anyone following me? So the physical world is not the truth and cannot be trusted. Biological and physical realities don't give any clues to our real identity and who we really are. The implication then is that the physical can be disregarded and it's severed from its connection to the metaphysical and the spiritual. So if the physical world doesn't provide any rational basis for understanding who we are, then it's all just subjective, right? So, so the physical realities are actually not a reality at all. They're simply random. And as such, they can be redefined and reshaped to fit the preferences of an individual or the preferences and desires of the state. This is also just called materialism, to simplify for you. You ever heard of materialism? Secularism, the materialist view, that nature is the product of blind, purposeless forces. So the body, this thing here, it's reduced to a collection of cells and organs that the mind is free to use for its own purposes. Does any of this make sense? It's kind of weird. The funny thing is, if, if, if materialism is true, then we can't know or be certain that materialism is true. And therefore, the true materialist should toss out atheism. Because if your mind and the thoughts it generates are the products of blind and random forces outside your control, then you obviously can't trust your own thinking. So if you can't trust your own thinking, you obviously can't trust the arguments for materialism and atheism, and therefore you have no reason to be an atheist. Which is why C.S. Lewis said, unless I believe in God, unless I believe in thought, I cannot believe in God. So I cannot use thought to disbelieve in God. Anyone awake? We're just getting started, guys. Okay. But where did this kooky belief come from? Yeah, let's trace it a little bit. Gnosticism, Gnostic dualism. I, I, I'm not really my body. My body's just like a Corvette for me, the driver, to step into. Like, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's a shell. It's a vessel. And inside, secretly in here somewhere, that's me. Where, where did this belief come from exactly? Well, it kind of starts maybe with Plato. Plato said that the soul is like a man driving a chariot. The soul is like a man driving a chariot. The chariot's the vessel, your body. You are the soul, and so you enter into that chariot. Uh, Rene Descartes maybe really popularized this the most. Ever heard the phrase, I think, therefore I am? You know where that came That was Rene Descartes. And so the real human identity is in the mind alone. So Descartes gave us this belief that the self is kind of like a ghost that owns and controls a body the way you own and control your car. Listen, ready? If your body is like a car... Why not take it to the body shop and give it a makeover that reflects the real me? <laughs> Ready, listen. It, if the real me is not my body, and my body is just a vehicle or a house in which the real me inhabits, why not remake myself in my own image? Ooh. Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. I want to make the outside feel like the inside. Transgenderism? Gnostic dualism undergirds and explains the entire culture of death today. So, 
It says that you might have male gametes and male chromosomes, and you may have a, a, a phallic, male genitalia, but that's not you. The real you inside is Sally because the body's just a shell for the real person, and, and your body provides no clues to your real identity. So therefore, why not liberate Sally from the biological prison of your male body? It's Gnosticism! Okay, you, should I do abortion now? The body, the baby may be human, and it may have a human body, and we obviously know it's a human because Planned Parenthood admitted that in their president in his book, Life in the Making, on page three, Alan Guttmacher, who took over for Margaret Sanger, when he said, we all know the human life begins at conception. So we know it's a human, but it doesn't matter, but because why? The human body and this fleshy, physical thing is not the real person. The real person is your thoughts, aims, consciousness, and desires. And because the baby's not developed enough yet to have self-awareness, consciousness, and desires, then it may have a human body, but there's no person there yet. Oh, it's the same weird kooky ideology. So last year, I admitted on social media that I identify as Sally, and I was able, I was able to, to liberate Sally from the biological prison of self. I just ripped her out, and, and I entered the world as Sally. She, her, and now... This evening, I'd like to take one of, the, one of the first opportunities to share publicly that I identify as trans-vaccinated. <laughs> trans-vaccinated. I, I, I may not have the spike protein because I never received the Fauci ouchie, but because <laughs> the Gnostics taught me that the body means nothing. It's a random a result of a purposeless universe that we can't trust, and therefore biology and biological realities don't provide any signals or clues to my real identity and to who I really am. And so I was able to imprint my vaccinated identity onto the imprint of my physical blob of flesh that's not the real me. And so just as I changed my pronoun on my driver's license, I've also changed my vaccine status on my vaccine passport, and I'd like for you to refer to me by my vaccine pronouns, Vaxv. <laughs> and if I'm being honest with you and speaking my truth, I always knew that I was born in a vaccinated body. And, and the transvaxphobia, the transvaxphobia that I have I've encountered by people who say that, that you're not vaccinated even though you didn't get the vaccine has sometimes caused me to want to commit suicide because they're not acknowledging my real truth and identity. <laughs> but do you see it's the same ideology? No, seriously, it's funny, but it is a literal, logical conclusion of Gnosticism. Because if the body is just a shell for my true identity, that's a metaphysical, spiritual thing that you can't touch, and I don't have the spike protein because that's a biological, physical thing, then why can't I just imprint my true vaccinated identity onto my unjabbed body? But Fauci says that that's not accurate. And yet he is already accepted and imbibed the false heresy known as Gnostic dualism. Do you see how this undergirds so much of our culture of death today? Okay, let's look at abortion. Peter Singer at Princeton University, that old fart and degenerate communist who defends abortion through point of birth and the murder of infants. I'm not joking, the murder of infants. Here's Peter Singer in his book, uh, Practical Ethics. It is possible to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as the equivalent to member of the species Homo sapiens. 
Whether a being is a member of a, a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. And yet, guess what? Peter Singer is most famous, or infamous rather, for his support of infanticide and the killing of babies up to one year old. No, 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 he writes about it in his books. Like, I'm not embellishing this point. Why? Do you see it? Because the qualities that ground personhood, which are absent in the unborn, continue to remain absent in the newborn. When you hold your one-month-old baby up in the mirror and mom gave her the cutest little outfit, is your baby going, oh, I'm adorable? <laughs> Thanks, mom. I'm aware of myself as an autonomous individual who's never existed before and will never exist again. No. Actually, babies at that stage of development are not self-aware yet of their own existence. So the kind of cognitive, mental, remember the mind is the real person, the body-mind split, are you following me? Because the mind in the infant has not exercised or manifested the kind of cognitive abilities that Peter Singer says ground personhood, then the same things that are absent in the unborn are absent in the newborn, so he's actually being consistent. And saying, I'm willing to take my heinous, heinous premises to their logical conclusion. Gnosticism. A human, but not a person, because it doesn't have these intangible metaphysical reactions in their mind yet that is the real person. In 1973, in Roe vs. Wade, the term human in person was ripped apart. Now, praise God, Roe Ro was overturned, but what's my point? Since 1973, you no longer had rights in virtue of being human because being human was no longer enough to ground those rights. Something else had to ground them. Understand this, friends. If the real human identity is in the mind alone, and the baby in the womb is not yet developmentally advanced to have desires, then when you kill the baby, you don't kill a person, you just dissect a body. Follow the science. Or follow the religion of humanism, Darwinism, and secular progressivism. So where does this lead? If being human is no longer enough to be granted the rights of personhood, then how do we determine who is a person and who isn't? Do you see it? Remember, simply having human DNA and having a human body, that's no longer enough to guarantee human rights. So then what will ground those personhood, right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? How do we ground them? How do we make sense of them? How do we justify them? The state will. And those who real political power will determine what kind of qualities or cognitive abilities are necessary to be a person, person, person. Here's what I mean by this. Here's how my friend Nancy Piercy puts it. Listen to this. You need to read everything Nancy Piercy writes, by the way. The only way the state can legalize abortion is to deny the relevance of biology and declare that some biological humans are not persons. The state has taken on itself the authority to decide which humans qualify for the status of personhood, defined in terms of mental abilities, the capacity to think, feel, and desire. Do you see it? It's no longer enough simply being human. You have to have these cognitive abilities. But I hope you see how religious the ideas are that animate the left's support and demand for abortion. All human conflict is ultimately theological. 
Therefore, we can't help but live religiously. Plato wrote about how the Carthaginian culture viewed child sacrifice. Listen to this. He said, with us, for instance, human sacrifice is not legal but unholy, whereas the Carthaginians perform it as a thing they account holy and legal. Do you remember when Cory Booker was running for president? He had a viral, disgusting moment on national television where he said, abortion is the most sacrosanct. Right. What does sacrosanct mean? Sacred? To declare holy and worthy of worship. And honest pro-abortion thinkers admit this today. When I was one years old, in 1992, a kooky weirdo named Jeanette Paris wrote a book called The Sacrament of Abortion. She was honest, huh? Like Peter Singer? Here's what she said. I have drawn inspiration throughout this book from a guiding image, the Artemis of Greek mythology. By the way, that was the goddess of childbirth. It is not immoral to choose abortion. It is simply another kind of morality, a pagan one. It is time to stop being defensive about our position, time to point an accusatory finger at the other camp and denounce its own immoral stance. Abortion is a sacrifice to Artemis, she said. Yeah, this is from her book. She said, abortion is a sacrament for the gift of life to remain pure. Our culture needs new rituals as well as laws to restore abortion to its sacred dimension, which is both terrible and necessary. Aren't you grateful for when like the left is like, they're like intellectually honest and consistent. They're like, yeah, no, it's totally pagan. No, like we're like totally de demoniacs, like kooky Aztec Witzelapokli worshipers. No, totally. And we need to restore that to its sacred dimension. Peter Kreft, the Protestant turned Catholic philosopher said abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy, holy words. This is my body. But with the opposite, blasphemous meaning. What are the words of our Savior in the upper room at the first communion? This is my body. And now I go, I, I go break it for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And so the central phrase that animates the entire culture of death today is the same phrase. This is my body my choice. If I want to chop off my genitals or kill my baby in the womb, shut up. Restore it to its sacred and terrible dimension. Ever heard of embryonic stem cell research? Ever heard of fetal organ harvesting? Prenatal gene editing? I'm trying to edit the genes of little embryos now and they die, but hey, if we can perfect that, we can apply it on ourselves and find new ways to extend our own lives. Oh, What's the common denominator between those three Joseph Mengele kind of like experiments I just went through? Abortion is the pagan replacement for man's pursuit of eternal life. Rather than accepting the broken body and shed blood of Christ for eternal life, they demand that we break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life. But it's still demon worship. Because Satan doesn't care the name of the God that you call him. So today he's happy to be called self, money, education, and career well-being. As long as you continue to shove children down his throat, he will say yes and amen. For he is the God of the religion of secular progressivism, humanism, Darwinism, Neo-Malthusianism, Klaus Schwabism, and Bill Gatesism. 
the same kooky pagan religion the entire way. So did our pluralistic society and our tolerance of these ideas make us more free, church? I was told about a neutral public square by Andy Stanley and Rick Warren that like if we just disengaged, it would just be utopia and peace and we would just preach the gospel, let the culture burn down around us and then when people suffer as a result of bad ideas, then they can come to the church and we'll pick up the pieces and be like a hospital, but not an army. Did our pluralistic society make us more free? Here's how the slippery slope of tolerance works. Are you ready? We want abortions to be safe, legal, and rare. That's all. We agree that abortion is a tragedy, but it needs to be made legal in some horrific circumstances. Just tolerate it. What happened next? We want abortions legal through point of birth. Not everyone shares your Christian belief that human life begins at conception. Why should your religious beliefs be imposed on the entire country? Just accept it. Where do we go from here? We want to shout our abortions. And so we're going to enter churches after Roe v. Wade gets overturned, and we're going to chant, without this basic right, women can't be free. Abortion on demand and without apology. Just celebrate it. And then what happened? We want to force Americans to fund abortions with their tax dollars. We want pro-life OBGYNs who share what we call misinformation to lose their license to practice medicine. We want pro-life nurses to be coerced into performing and assisting with abortions upon threat of career termination. We want 12-year-olds in California to obtain abortions without parental consent or knowledge and charge the abortion to their parents' insurance plans. And we want religious institutions like Calvary Chapel Chino Hills to be forced into covering abortions in their healthcare plans. Just participate in our agenda. We go from tolerance to acceptance to celebration to participation awfully quick, don't we? There's no such thing as moral neutrality. Euthanasia and doctor-assisted suicide. Gnosticism. The same dualistic worldview that undergirds and drives abortion also undergirds and drives euthanasia and doctor-assisted suicide. If the ability to exercise, listen, to exercise conscious thoughts, will, and desires is what makes you a person, then when there is the absence of those cognitive functions, there is an absence of a person. So dementia, Alzheimer's, people who no longer know who they are, they can no longer exercise the same cognitive abilities that the unborn can't, which the left says disqualifies them from the community of persons. And it never stops with those just near death, by the way. Have you noticed? Isn't that what they said? Oh no, it's just for people at death's door about to die in crazy pain that want doctor assistance. That's it, that's all we want. My friend John Stone Street just put this perfectly in an email the other day. Like the German extermination initiatives, these laws expand every time they are tried. The debate begins with those near death. And then it quickly expands to those who are terminal, then to those with incurable diseases, then to those with permanent conditions, then to the disabled, and finally to the depressed and mentally ill. First, consent is required, then it is implied, finally, it is unnecessary. Gnosticism. And once again, euthanasia becomes a part of the cultural orthodoxy, you will once again be forced into participation. You will. Want an example? 2016. An international group of bioethicists published a statement calling on state governments and authorities to get involved 
state governments to get involved in making hiring decisions in healthcare. Why? Because of Christians and common sense healthcare workers who objected to the culture of death. And this international collection of bioethicists urged governments to set up tribunals to coerce doctors and healthcare workers into performing abortions, infanticide, and euthanasia, even if they believe those practices are morally wrong. And if those stinking pro-life doctors continue to protest, this 2016 statement suggested that they should be punished by being required to perform community service or attend re-education sessions. You will participate in the culture of death. What about homosexuality? How is homosexuality an outgrowth of the same Gnostic heresy? Well, we know on the level of biology, anatomy, and physiology that there are only males and females and that they are the counterparts to one another. That's how our sexual and reproductive system is designed. So the body has what's called a built-in telos. Anyone know what that means? A built-in telos. What's, what's telos? What is teleology? What's the purpose of a thing, <laughs> right? So this table only fulfills its telos, watch me break it right now, <laughs> if it holds my notes and stays in place. It has fulfilled its telos, its purpose. The body has a built-in telos. Here's how Nancy Piercy explains it. Engaging in homosexual behavior is to reject the telos of your body. You're saying, you're saying, why should my body's purpose direct my moral choices? Why should the biological reality of my maleness or femaleness have any bearing on my sexual choices? Do you see it's actually a very low view of the body? It's to say, this is random, it's, just, it's stupid. I'm just, I'm just here and it's just stupid. It's a very low, disrespectful view of the body. Camille Paglia, this crazy pro-abortion homosexual, I think she just said she's trans, activist, academic. Camille Paglia, like all these leftists, they're actually really honest. It's like, I'm actually grateful for them teaching you, the church, to say, listen to Jack Hibbs when he tells you all human conflict is ultimately theological. Listen to Camille Paglia. She says <laughs> that we are male and female. She acknowledges this before she went trans like last year. She acknowledged female, male, that's it. But she said, why not defy nature? She said, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. That's Gnosticism. The assumption is that what ultimately counts is my mind, feeling, and desires. The body means nothing and my body's design is irrelevant. Now watch where it goes from here. Ready? Ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. If the body provides no clues to our real identity and we're just machines driven by the ghost of our soul, then the person we call mother and the person we call father are essentially just the same. The, the vehicle that holds their identity may look different, but that's just a random coincidence of nature, right? So... What's the difference really between a mother and a father or a mother and a mother or a father and a father? If you sever biology from identity, you hand power over to the state to define for us what we used to allow nature to define for us. What do I mean by this? Nancy Piercy again. The only way the law can treat same-sex parents the same as opposite sex parents is to deny the relevance of biology. 
and declare parenthood to be a state of mind toward the child. What you think, feel, and desire. So the state is taking on itself the authority to define what a parent is and who qualifies as one. Oh, this Seth, I'm, I'm texting Jack. He's so weird. Why won't he just preach expositionally and just tell him Jesus loves us and not get into the culture war? Uh, let me show you why. This is from my friend Katie Faust. Listen to this example. This, has happened. this happened in America. While living in New York, Frank and his partner Joseph conceived twins through in vitro fertilization. Frank and Joseph. Now listen. Joseph's sister carried them to term. Joseph's sister surrendered her parental rights after the children were born. Frank is their biological father and was their primary caregiver and the only legal parent until the twins were almost seven years old. After separating, Joseph and Frank sued, Joseph sued Frank for custody over the twins. A court chose to remove the kids from Frank, the biological father, and give them to Joseph, even though he is not the biological father and had no legal relationship to the kids. How is that possible? It all stems from a court case that has redefined what it means to be a parent. In 2016, the New York State Court of Appeals expanded the definition of parenthood in a case involving two gay partners. The court ruled that a partner who has no biological or legal relationship to a child can nonetheless sue for custody or visitation rights if he or she clearly demonstrated and and intent to parent when the child was conceived. In other words, biology and legal status are no longer necessary factors in becoming a parent. Neither does an adult need to undergo the vetting and screening or adoption process. All you need to show is that you intended to co-parent a child at the time he or she was conceived. Now, how did the New York court argue for this decision? Go read it, it's wild. By citing the very ruling and logic operative in the Supreme Court decision that so many woke Christians celebrated in this country. Obergefell. Which redefined marriage as based on mere consent between adults regardless of sex and the needs of children. The New York court reasoned that if marriage is no longer based on biology and the needs of children, then neither is the definition of a parent. Did our pluralistic society make us more free? Did our tolerance of a fundamentally religious heresy usher in the liberal utopia we were told would happen? Nope. Here's how the slippery slope of tolerance works. We want the right to engage in homosexual sex and relationships. That's all. Just tolerate us. Actually, actually, we want marriage equality. We want to change the entire definition of marriage and sever it from biological realities. Just accept us. Actually, we want the entire month of June set aside to glorify our sexual preferences and identities and every corporation to put our flags onto their branding. Just celebrate us. Actually, we want photographers and bakers to be forced to photograph our weddings and bake our wedding cakes, and we want our pornographic sex mandated in public schools as part of health courses with no parental opt-out option. Also, we want the right to adopt children, and any orphan or foster care organization that refuses to give us children should be shut down and sued for discrimination. Just participate in our agenda. What about transgenderism? Trans activists literally use the language of Gnosticism to describe themselves. Not because Seth Gruber says so, 
but because they use that language themselves. BBC Social, big YouTube channel, featured a non-binary person a few years ago, you can go watch it by the way, who said it doesn't matter what meat skeleton you're born in. No, that's what there's, that's, that's not the language of conservatives, guys. That was a, tr- a tr- non-binary person on a BBC social YouTube channel that went viral, and he, 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 they, Legion, I don't know, said, it doesn't matter what meat skeleton you're born in. What does he say? What, what I'm telling you, the, the body's just, it's just meat. It's just flesh. It's just random physical stuff. Because a real person is sitting here inside. And liberal publications and left-leaning networks have even described the transgender ideology as body hatred. Yeah, not because we say so, but because they're using the language of Gnosticism. A girl that had transitioned at 11 and tried to live as a boy for three years, she came back at 14, accepted herself as a girl, and this is what she said. The turning point came when I realized that it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Have you guys ever watched The Office? You know Dwight, uh, Rain, well, Rain Wilson is the actor. He just went viral on TikTok last month, and here's what he said, who I am and what I am is not my body. No, that's the direct quote. Are you seeing this in the culture at all? Hmm. A trans documentary filmmaker tried to fundraise for a documentary on Kickstarter, and the name of the documentary was, I am not my body. No, seriously, like, they're using this language. If biology and the physical world is just the result of blind, mindless, and purposeless forces, then they can easily be redefined and reshaped to fit the preferences of an individual or the preferences and desires of the state. Oh, right. When we give over to the state to define for us what we used to allow nature to define for us, because I've got eyeballs and a prefrontal cortex and two brain cells left to rub together, and I can deduce metaphysical realities from the biological world. No, they're severed. You want an example? Just so you don't think I'm just a kooky weirdo. (laughs) This is why the FDA, two months ago, Federal Drug Administration, the FDA just (sighs) defined pregnancy as an illness in order to get emergency youth authorization on the RU486 abortion pill because the judge had temporarily halted it, and so the FDA went into overdrive, and in their, in their FDA writings, they said pregnancy is an illness. Redefining human nature itself. Do you see it? By the way, <laughs> do you love to like take liberal ideas and just go, well, here's where they lead. <laughs> okay, you ready for this? If pregnancy is an illness, then we must immediately ban all the fertility treatments and practices that the LGBTQ folks rely on to create children to deny them their mother and father because such fertility treatments are intentionally spreading illnesses. And as we know from the last three years, the liberal establishment and their unaccountable federal agencies would never intentionally spread an illness. And this is why last week, the CDC recently demanded that providers, healthcare providers, help men who think they're women and want to chest feed their baby. No, I'm serious. Read it. To provide medications that will cause his estrogen induced breasts to excrete a substance so they can feel like a mommy. It's right there. 
It's not me. Follow the science. Yeah, follow the weird kooky heresy called Gnosticism. By the way, have you noticed how this fulfills two of the left's weird priorities? One, autogenophilia. Who tracked with me on that one? Autogenophilia, the sexual arousal that comes from picturing yourself as the opposite gender. And it fulfills the LGBTQIA2 plus, my name is Legion, obsession with pedophilia. Who sees it? Men getting off by having babies suck on their nipple. No, no, no. Can I speak that clearly? That's what that is. They've just proven it to you. They're two priorities, autogenophilia and pedophilia. But notice, what's the attempt here? To remake nature itself, right? And subjugate nature to the tyranny of our will. For our will and our desires is all that matters. Now, when did this Gnostic dualism begin to launch and lay the foundation for transgenderism and this radical gender theory? Where, where, where the heck did this come from? John Money. John Money. He was called one of the, with Kinsey, he was called one of the fathers of the sexual revolution, actually. Mm -hmm. Who popularized the myth, listen, that gender and sex are distinct. That's Gnosticism. Gender, your inward identity, has nothing to do with your sex, biological realities. Sex, biological, natural realities, is completely separate from gender, subjective identity, mind. John Money founded the Gender Identity Clinic at John Hopkins University in 1966. One year later, in 1967, the Reimer parents brought their twin babies, particularly David Reimer, who as a baby had had a botched circumcision. And John Money, because sex and gender are distinct, said that a child would take the gender identity they were raised with, even if it was the opposite of the sex to which they were assigned at birth. So he encouraged the Reimer parents to cut off David's penis, surgically construct female genitals, buy dresses, raise David as a girl called Brenda, and at puberty to pump him full of estrogen. This was John Money, the founder of gender theory, his first attempt at testing his Gnostic theories about the bifurcation of gender and sex. This was his first attempt. He would force David and his twin brother Brian to perform sexual acts on one another as children, to stimulate sexual intercourse, to touch each other's genitals, and he would take photos of it. No, it's all documented. That's who John Money was. At 13, David threatened to commit suicide if his parents made him see Dr. Money again. By 15, he forced the truth out of his father, spent years surgically reversing the damage done to his body, married a young woman, adopted three babies, but the damage done to him and his twin brother Brian were too much. And in uh, 2002, Brian died via overdose, and in 2004, David shot himself in the head. John Money then claimed that his theories were proven correct and that a child would take the gender identity they were raised with rather than the sex they were assigned at birth. That is where transgenderism comes from. Oh, and John Money, by the way, defended pedophilia and incest in his own writings. 
and he's celebrated today by pederast rights groups, such as the North American Man-Boy Love Association. And I found it on their website, Celebrating John Money. I don't recommend you go to the North American Man-Boy Love Association, but they praise John Money. Gnosticism. All human conflict is ultimately theological. The religious nature of this evil couldn't be clearer. Do you see it? Do you remember when Target recently during Pride Month featured the art of a Satanist in their transgender-themed merchandise for their Pride collection? Some UK brand named Abprelin, Abprelin or something, whose designer Eric says he's trans, his art said things like, Satan respects pronouns. That's a demon on his shirt called Baphomet. Not because I say so, but because he said so. I went with a variation of Baphomet, he says, for this design. A deity who themselves is a mixture of gender, beings, ideas, and existences. They reject binary stereotypes and expectations. Who is Baphomet? He's an androgynous, bull-looking demon. Have you ever noticed how most, most demons have like a bull look to them? Baal, Moloch, child sacrifice, always looks like a bull. Baphomet always appears as sort of androgynous. Neither male nor female, it's kind of hard to decipher. And the Church of Satan features Baphomet as one of their sort of deities. And Satanists all around America, including the Satanic Temple, will, will get these tattoos on their arms. And it says, Solve et Coagula. Solve et Coagula. And it's featured on Baphomet's arms in every picture of a demon. It says, Solve Coagula. Do you know what that means? To reduce and break everything down so you can remake it. You're not a tin hat wearing weirdo, guys, for observing what they say about themselves. Maya Angelou didn't get much right. But she was right when she said, when people tell you who they are, believe them. Break it all down so we can remake it. Baphomet, solve coagula. The same thing happened historically, by the way, with the, with the demon or goddess called Ishtar. Her images and idols are found throughout the Middle Eastern world, and she's often portrayed as androgynous, <laughs> both male and female attributes. She's also known... Um, by the same demon in scripture that references Asherah. Oh, who reads their Bibles? The Asherah poles, the goddess of sex. They'd worship her through orgies and unbridled sexual escapades. That was Asherah. Asherah is like another historical manifestation of Ishtar. She's also believed to have the ability to change a person's gender. Now listen to me. I read Jonathan Kahn's Return of the Gods, who went to the old Mesopotamian scripts, like all this weird old writing that, that, that these demon worshipers wrote about Ishtar and all these things. There's an ancient Sumerian hymn that reveals Ishtar's power to, quote, turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man to change one into the other. These were writings about Ishtar. I am a woman, I am a man, I am an exuberant young man. <laughs> I am a man, I am a woman, saying both things. These are like old, ancient, like written on stone tablets that we have about people who worshiped Ishtar. Do you see how ancient and religious these ideas are? Lastly, there's an ancient inscription from southern Turkey 
that says, may Ishtar <laughs> impress feminine parts into his male parts. And to top it all off, Ishtar would often have her male priests surgically castrate themselves to appear in the more androgynous form of their goddess. There is nothing new under the sun. By the way, have you noticed how so many of the transgender activists and public figures have really weird satanic stuff going on? Anyone knows this? The founder of the New York City Satanic Temple, yeah, is named Ash Blackwood. Ash Blackwood. He said his motivation in founding the New York City Satanic Temple was this, to provide an enthusiastically accepting atmosphere for LGBTQ people. He said that was his motivation in founding the New York City Satanic Temple. Now listen to this. This, this is the darkest edges of the culture of death, guys, that all human conflict is ultimately theological. When he founded the New York City Temple, Satanic Temple, he changed his last name from Blackwood to Astaroth. So I went and Googled the word Astaroth, and all these demonology websites came up. It refers to the great duke of hell. But then I, I started Googling more of the references. Astaroth is named after the Near Eastern god Astarte. Because have you noticed, like cultures, they would like rename some of these gods, but it was like the same demon, right? It was the same manifestation of spiritual darkness. And then I, I traced some more citations and saw where Astaroth came from. Astarate is the Semitic counterpart of the Mesopotamian goddess called Ishtar. <laughs> who turns men into women and women into men. The founder of the New York City Satanic Temple changes his last name to Ishtar, the goddess of transgenderism. And so, of course, we've come full circle. Naturally, Ash Blackwood is featured sitting on a demon Baphomet, Solve Coagula, with a pentagram behind him. That's just a coinketing, Seth, you weird conspiracy theorist. Did our pluralistic society make us more free? Did our tolerance of this fundamentally religious heresy usher in the liberal utopia we were promised? Nope, this is how the slippery slope of tolerance works. We just want the right to dress up as the opposite sex and live our true identity in public. Just tolerate us. Actually, actually, we want the right to enter the bathroom and locker room of the opposite sex. Just accept us. Actually, actually, we want the right to dress up sexually in front of your children and read books to them. And we also want the entire month of June set aside to glorify our delusions and pressure corporations into donating to our funds. And if that professional athlete refuses to celebrate us, we'll ruin his career. Just celebrate and participate in our agenda. But now we want to mandate our gender theory curriculum in public schools without parental knowledge. We want to redefine children's rights to give schools the authority to dis disciple children into transgender delusion and hide it from the parents. Jessica Tapia, who attends this church and was fired from a public school for telling the principal if one of my students says they're the other gender, I will not allow them into the opposite locker room and I will inform the parents and she was fired. We want to mandate that you use our pronouns or face legal action. We also want to trans your children and get them chemical and surgical intervention without parental knowledge or consent. And if you disagree as the parent, we'll take your kid from you. Just participate in our agenda. 
slippery slope goes real fast. Uh, lastly, and very quickly, transhumanism. Gnosticism. If the body is just a shell that the real person lives in, because the real person is thoughts, desires, consciousness, why not upload your consciousness into the cloud and achieve digital immortality? Do you know that they're trying this right now? Gnosticism! Can you preach against that, pastor? Can you preach against false religion? No, because they told me they were, it's just a politics. And Ed Stetzer told me that Romans 13 means that we we have to listen to the governing authorities. Um, Can I prove it to you from their mouth again? Ray Kurzweil was the Google director of engineering, and he believes that advances in AI will enable us to download the computer to the brain. Here's what he says. The whole idea of a species is a biological concept. What we are doing, he says, is transcending biology. Who sees it now? All human conflict is ultimately theological. What if every pastor preached like this from pulpits? What would that do to the social courage and fabric of the blood-bought bride of Christ in America? We would have resistance, revolution. So why is Gnostic dualism wrong? (laughs) What's wrong with this weird thing? Can we detox from this now? Is anyone a little overwhelmed? Let's detox from Gnosticism now, shall we? Okay, here we go. Four reasons that Gnosticism or Gnostic dualism is really weird, kooky, and stupid. Ready? Four reasons. I'm going to detox you right now. I'm going to give you a little ideological pistols to just destroy this entire agenda and ideology. Isn't it great we're not streaming live from Jacket's YouTube channel? My goodness. This thing would have been pulled one minute in. All right. Body self-dualism, Gnostic dualism, is completely subjective. Secular progressives never explain why the functions that they associate with personhood are value-giving in the first place. So you can't merely assert or scream that having self-awareness makes you a person. You have to argue for it. Have you noticed this? They just say, like, like they say this at school board meetings, right? And like, drag queen story hours and like, you know, the viral thing with Matt Walsh and the trans people and the, you know, Dr. Phil and the, they just say this like it's fact. They say, they can say no, we know that gender identity is completely distinct from sex. I, actually, no, we don't. Do you have an argument for that? Can you prove that? No, they just take it as the liberal orthodoxy. You can't just say it's self-awareness and metaphysical things that make me a person and not my body. You have to argue for it. How about I said, it's actually the ability to multiply and play violin that makes you a real person. The liberal would be like, Seth, you can't just claim that. You have to argue for it. So it's completely subjective. When personhood is separated from the human body, then human value becomes subjective. So who gets to decide which cognitive abilities are required to meet the litmus test of personhood? Because we've untethered ourselves from human nature. So what now grounds personhood? What now grounds rights? Whatever criteria and litmus test the state comes up with. Do you see that? So Gnosticism, completely subjective. Second reason, it's counterintuitive. Um, let me translate. It's stupid. It's, um, it's asinine. It's, it's mock-worthy. Okay? It's counterintuitive. What do I mean by this? <laughs> okay. 
If body self-dualism or Gnostic dualism is true, you would be forced to say things like this. My body existed before I did. <laughs> right? Because when you were a baby in the womb and an infant, you didn't have those cognitive abilities yet that the ground person until my body existed before I did. It's kind of weird. You must admit that you've never hugged your mother because you can't hug desires, thoughts, and aims. If psychiatrists who cure multiple personality disorder are successful, they would be guilty of mass homicide. Because <laughs> each different personality has different thoughts and consciousness and desires, and therefore, by the liberal orthodoxy and the Gnostic dualistic religion, would be a different person. And so if you cause him to bring the multiple personalities back into one person, you would have murdered the other persons. And yet, what liberal who defends Gnosticism would pursue going after psychiatrists who call multiple personality? Well, probably in about five years, actually, right? <laughs> so, don't you love how science continues to prove the biblical worldview true? You want another example? Ever heard of oxytocin? It's released when a mother nurses her baby. Not excretes a weird substance from a male's tit, okay? Um, and it's especially present in women during sex, and it's been shown to create a sense of trust. Actually, one sex therapist, and you should probably avoid like literally all sex therapists because they all like trace back to Alfred Kinsey, but anyways, I, that's another lecture. But one sex therapist put it like this. When we have intercourse, we create an involuntary chemical commitment. Wow, oxytocin. Now, does anyone see it, by the way? Who, who's, who's like red-pilled and like really awake right now? If <laughs> oxytocin, a physical thing, who sees where I'm going? has been shown to create a sense of trust, a non-physical thing. But if the Gnostic dualism dichotomy is true, then how could a biological or physical phenomenon have any effect on the non-physical consciousness? Follow the science and become a Christian. <laughs> so it's counterintuitive. If you apply Gnosticism in the real world, do you see what weird conclusions you reach? Number three. Body self-dualism, Gnosticism, Gnostic dualism destroys human equality. You can kiss human equality goodbye. What do I mean by this? If personhood and human value are based on randomly selected traits, like self-awareness, which we don't share equally, then those with a greater self-awareness would be more of a person than those with less. Because do we share consciousness, desires, ability to feel pain, thoughts, um, self-awareness? Do we share these things in common to the same degree? No, they differ amongst human beings. So what happens when you ground rights and personhood on things that come in varying degrees? It then follows that personhood comes in varying degrees. So human equality is destroyed. Fourth reason, Gnostic dualism doesn't make sense. It actually justifies killing for the greater good. It justifies killing for the greater good. What do I mean? If personhood and human value are based on the exercise of cognitive functions, then the involuntary euthanasia and involuntary organ donation of cognitively disabled patients is completely justified. Why? If cognitively disabled patients, let's say um, dementia, autism, or traumatic brain injury, if they are human non-persons because they can't exercise or manifest in the present, those mental abilities that they say is where the real person lives, right? And only persons have value, then what would be wrong with me intentionally killing them to harvest their organs for myself or other real persons? It's the same Peter Singer thing with the unborn. If, if the dementia, traumatic brain injury patient can no longer evidence or manifest 
those cognitive mental abilities that is, that is the real person in the shell of the body, then there is no person there anymore, even though it's just a body. So Gnostic dualism will literally end up in resulting in justifying killing for the greater good. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. What does the Bible say? The Bible and Christianity clearly teach that we are both body and soul. We're unified. The theological term for this is hylomorphism. Hylomorphism. We're hylomorphic beings. C.S. Lewis did this beautifully. We're both body and soul. Here's how Nancy Piercy puts this. Again, the Bible, always right on it. She says, the inner life of the soul is expressed through the outer life of the body. This is highlighted through the parallelism, parallelism characteristic of Hebrew poetry. Here's what I mean. Ready for this. Watch, watch how the Bible knew about the science before we knew about the science. <laughs> Psalm 63.1. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Psalm 63.1. My soul, metaphysical, spiritual, thirsts for you. And then my, my, my flesh yearns for you. They put the two together. Uh, Psalm 44.25. My soul has sunk down into the dust. My body cleaves to the earth. Unites them again. Proverbs 4, 20 through 22. Keep my words in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Oh, we're a hylomorphic. We're a united, unified person. And then Psalm 32, 3. When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away. When I refuse to confess my sin, a metaphysical spiritual act that you can't see, then my body, physical, it wasted away. And then Jesus proves how false Gnosticism is because when he rises in a perfected state, he still has the holes in his hands. But that can't be. The body's an evil thing created by a demigod. Can't be trusted. Jesus, you got it all wrong. Why did you keep the holes in your body? Don't you know you're just a soul and a ghost in the vehicle of a body? Well, tolerance can be a deadly, deadly thing, can it? What is the cost of getting this wrong? If man is merely the product of evolution and his body the stuff of space dust and electrified sludge that just happened to arrange itself into consciousness, then not only is human dignity and the sanctity of life a myth, but it also means that the highest attainable good is pleasure. Right? So if it feels good, do it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But without a moral lawgiver and objective truth, anything is justified. This means if feeding the poor brings you pleasure, but murdering the poor brings me pleasure, just let me live my truth, man. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the survivor of the Russian gulags, and maybe the most prophetic voice of the 20th century, said humanism is the proclaimed and practiced autonomy of man from any higher force above him. Who remembers Francis Schaeffer? Francis Schaeffer defined humanism as placing man at the center of all things and making him the measure of all things. 
which is why Margaret Sanger's first published paper before she founded Planned Parenthood bore the headline, No Gods and No Masters. Wow. Julian Huxley, who was the first general of the United Nations Ethical Society Cultural Organization, offered an interesting definition of humanism. By the way, Julian Huxley had a brother named Aldous Huxley who wrote Brave New World. And their grandpapa was named Thomas Huxley, who was one of the first apologists and adherents to Darwin's theory of evolution. And grandpapa Huxley did so much to mainstream Darwinism that grandpapa Huxley was nicknamed Darwin's bulldog. The apple doesn't fall far. Here's how Julian Huxley defined humanism. I use the word humanist to mean someone who believes that man is just as much a natural phenomenon as an animal or plant, that his body, mind, and soul were not supernaturally created, but are the products of evolution, and that he is not under the control or guidance of any supernatural being or beings, but he has to rely on himself and his own powers. Accordingly, man then must make all decisions on all matters, including life and death, right? So let's quickly ask this question. Where did we go from Darwin's theological claim that there is no God and we're just animals. Where did we go from that claim? Well, Darwin's cousin, Charles Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, coined the term eugenics. Coined the freaking term. I've read some of Galton, by the way. Francis Galton read his cousin's book, Origin of Species. He said it so changed his life that it became one of the pillars of his life. And he launched the eugenics. He's referred to as the modern father of the eugenics movement. He coined the term. Do you know what eugenics means? Good in birth. So what does that mean? Some people are not good in birth. Some people have good genes or bad genes. Eugenics. We go literally within the same family. We go from Darwinism to eugenics awfully quickly. <laughs> Ideology, hell of a drug. Francis Galton disciples Havelock Ellis, England's Alfred Kinsey. England's Alfred Kinsey. I won't get into the details there except that he had a raging affair with Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, and wrote about his sexual experiences in letters and forced his wife to read them and drove her insane. So we go really quickly from man as an animal to sexual chaos. Darwin, cousin Galton, disciples Havelock Ellis, who becomes the number one sexual and political partner of Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Wow, that happened quick. What happened about the neutral public square of pluralism I was promised by the libertarians? Moral neutrality is a myth. Tuck it away with Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. <laughs> but some atheists are honest. Richard Rorty, he calls himself a freeloading atheist because he goes, yeah, I can't ground human rights. So Richard Rorty says, I'm happy to reach over to the Judeo-Christian heritage to borrow the concept of the Imago Dei. Religious claims that human beings are made in the image of God, this Jewish and Christian element in our tradition is gratefully invoked by freeloading atheists like myself. 
He tells you he can't ground personhood and universal human rights. He'll borrow it from the Christians that he hates. Did you know that together, Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, and Margaret Sanger would spill more innocent blood in the 20th century alone than all the murderers, warlords, and tyrants of human history combined? Did you know that those four people would spill more innocent blood between the year 1900 and 2000 than all the murderers, warlords, and tyrants of the previous history combined? And they say Christian nationalism is the great threat to our democracy. We think the lady protests too much. Why is atheism so deadly? Why? Because atheism is nothing other than the whisper, ye shall be as gods. Whitaker Chambers, the former Soviet spy and communist who defected back to conservatism and turned Reagan into a conservative, Whitaker Chamber writes in his book, Witness, that communism is nothing more or less than the whisper of the serpent at Eve, ye shall be as gods. That comes from a former Soviet spy and communist who turned Reagan into a conservative. Atheism, therefore, is by definition satanic. Yeah, you won't hear Rick Warren say that one. He might offend the Democrats who attend his church and tithe to him. Because all human conflict is ultimately theological, the culture war was just a proxy war for a deeper spiritual war. So what we call the culture of death is neither more nor less than idol worship. And what does idol worship do to the idolater? It makes them like them. Right? What does Psalm 115.8 say? Those who make idols are like them, and thus are all who put their trust in them. Herbert Schlossberg puts it like this. When a civilization turns idolatrous, its people are profoundly changed by that experience. In a kind of reverse sanctification, the idolater is transformed into the likeness of the object of his worship. But idols are really demons, and demons are bloodthirsty with an appetite for destruction that will never be satiated. You give them some, they want more. They're like a socialist. So as Schlossberg says, bloodthirsty gods produce bloodthirsty people. Because if someone thinks that chance, materialism, chance rules the universe, his actions are likely to appear random. If people increasingly think that malevolence rules, just chaos, right? It's just stuff, it's just random. We can expect more human sacrifice. If there is a decline in the number of people who believe that God is love, we can expect fewer who think that actions of love are moral imperatives. For any individual or society, therefore, says Schlossberg, the religious questions are the ultimate ones that govern human conduct whether they believe it or not. Ideology is a hell of a drug. It'll take you further than you wanted to go and make you pay more than you wanted to pay. And you will follow the philosophical consistency of the ideas you've laid before you even when you don't know you're walking in the wake of your own destruction. That's how powerful ideology is. That is why 
All human conflict is ultimately theological. So what's my point? When you try and define nature itself, moral chaos ensues. So the result is that the state must step in and define for society what nature used to define for us. And if the state can redefine personhood, marriage, parents, and gender, it's only a matter of time before they redefine you. And this always ends in chaos, death, and destruction. When man subjugates that which is God's, nature, it's only a matter of time before man subjugates man. Is that not a truism of history? What did C.S. Lewis say? For the power of man to make himself what he pleases means, as we have always seen, the power of some men to make other men what they please. What we call man's power over nature, it turned out to be a power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument. If you can liberate yourself, even from the constraints of human nature itself, there is no end to your political project. We are at the point of required participation in the culture of death because we started with tolerance. We moved quickly to acceptance, right on to celebration, and before we knew it, we were participating. And because culture is to us what water is to a fish, we have been infected by pagan ideologies of a culture of death. So what is Satan's favorite poison? Apathy. Apathy. This is why screw tape tells his junior demon Wormwood, as the humans have said, hey, 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 Wormwood, as the humans have said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The longer the Christian feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel at all. That comes straight from the screw tape letters. C.S. Lewis telling you, what is Satan's favorite strategy? To keep Christians who feel all of the right things. Oh yeah, let them feel, let them mourn, let them cry over the culture of death, but never, never act because active habits are strengthened by repetition. So the longer he feels and doesn't act, he'll never act. And then if we can keep him in the position of feeling and not acting for a really, 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 really long time, soon he won't be able to feel at all. He'll become a spiritual degenerate of a couch potato who's only good for singing graves into gardens but never tears down the high places. Who stays in his cave, threshes his wheat like Gideon in Judges 6, but never walks out of the cave to tear down the Asherah poles and the Baal statues. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, in keeping... In keeping silent about evil and burying it so deep within you that no sign of it appears on the surface, we were implanting it. And it would rise up a thousand fold in the future. The rights and liberties you abandon today will be the rights and liberties your grandchildren never knew existed. It's not about you, 
It's not about selfishly protecting our rights. It's about those yet to be born and honoring our king. But this idea of, of being silent, burying the evil, it rises up a thousandfold. That's a biblical concept. Who remembers the kings in First and Second Kings? Anyone read First and Second Kings in the last year? Oh, good. Of course, Calvary Chapel, you know. Yeah. Do you remember it says that they, they did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but they did not tear down the high places. Remember, the high places were the places that all temples to false gods were erected. They gave quarter to idolatry and false religion. They tolerated it. Then they accepted it. Then they celebrated it. And then they were participating in it. As my friend Dr. Grant says, he says, Asa was a good king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But despite all the good he did, his final epitaph was that he did not remove the high places. He was good, he was moral, but he didn't go far enough. Asa's son Jehoshaphat was also a good king. He reigned in Jerusalem 25 years, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. But it says the high places were not taken away. So Je Jehoash was a good and moral king. Oh, he reigned in Jerusalem for 40 years. He did what was right in the Lord all of his days. But his last epitaph is that the high places were not taken away. Amaziah was a good and moral king for 29 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And yet his last epitaph was that the high places were not taken away. Azariah, son of Amaziah, reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Like his father, it says, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he's remembered with the final epitaph, the high places, not taken away. And lastly, Jotham was a good king of Judah. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. The high places were not taken away. He was good, he was moral, but he didn't go far enough. So as my friend Dr. Grant says, each of these kings ultimately failed. <gasps> Despite their good works and good intentions, because they did not utterly destroy the idols of the land. And bit by bit, the idolatry eroded their culture until one day it completely destroyed it. You'll recall, church, listen, you'll recall that after years of tolerating, accepting, and participating in sexual idolatry and child sacrifice, Jerusalem is captured, sacked, and pilfered by Nebuchadnezzar and his captain of the bodyguard, Nebuzaradan, who with the Chaldeans utterly destroy the house of the Lord and all of Jerusalem, and so the Babylonian captivity begins. Each of these kings failed to serve their society as prophets and priests, guiding and guarding the land. In other words, they were the silent tolerators and brought about the eventual destruction of Jerusalem. Knowing how and why the culture of death is wrong, flawed, and evil is not enough. God does not call his people to orthodoxy, but to orthopraxy. And isn't this the greatest adventure? You're actually missing out on the greatest adventure to do good deeds that God prepared in advance for you that you might walk in them. It, James says that Abraham's faith was made perfect or complete by what he did. We need the sons and daughters of Issachar. 
They were some of David's mighty men. It says, of the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. Do you notice the link there? They, they understood, so they knew what to do. They understood the culture of death, so they knew what to do. With an understanding comes a responsibility to act. But we have lost the heritage of Christian resistance in modern America, and we need to regain it. This is why I'm rebuilding the White Rose resistance for this generation against our silent but far more deadly holocaust of abortion with Sophie Scholl as the figurehead, a 21-year-old who had her head chopped off by the Nazis for trying to resist and mobilize people to resist, whose final words were, how can we expect righteousness to prevail when there's hardly anyone willing to give themselves up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day and I have to go now, but what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? She sacrificed her life and her head so that a new generation would rise and stop the evil before them. A governor of this state once said that we're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long walk from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said that if we lose that war and in so doing lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those that had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. I think we need to ask ourselves if we still know the freedoms that were intended for us by the founding fathers. Let's set the record straight. There is no argument over the choice between peace and war, but there is only one guaranteed way that you can have peace and you can have it in the next second, surrender. Admittedly, there is a risk in any course we follow other than this, but every lesson in history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement, and it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight and surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we will be left with the final demand, the ultimatum. And when the time comes to deliver that ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary. Because by that time, we will have weakened from within, spiritually, morally, and economically. And in our own side, we hear voices screaming for peace at any cost. Or as one commentator said, I'd rather live on my knees than die on my feet. But therein lies the road to war because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, where did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live under slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard around the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. That you and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is the meaning in the phrase peace through strength. 
Winston Churchill said, the destiny of mankind is not decided by material computation. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn that we're spirits and not animals. And something is going on in space and time and beyond space and time, which whether we like it or not spells due to you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We will preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we will sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. It's not about us. It's about those yet to be born. So welcome to Christian resistance, being birthed in California, Virginia, Washington, Colorado, Idaho, Texas, North Carolina, Florida, with remnants of Christians who are sick and tired of apathy and cheap grace syncretism and being like Lot and only preaching as much truth as the spirit of the age will allow you, lest you tick off the mob and lose your platform as a pastor. This is being called the new Protestantism, but it is in fact the old Protestantism. It is the Christian heritage of resistance, recognizing what my pastor Rob McCoy says, that we've been waiting downstream to pick up the human heartache that we helped create. Because we won't contend upstream where those false ideologies poison the waterhole and cause human heartache downstream. So what do good deeds and resistance look like at this late hour of the culture war, brothers and sisters? Well, here's a fun, easy one. You can't defeat a culture of death by funding a culture of death. Did you know every major diaper company in America funds the abortion industry? Did you know that? They all donate and support abortion. They're murdering their client base. Does capitalism explain that? Or does some kooky false religion explain that? So we're partnering with Every Life, which was birthed by Public Square and my buddy Michael Seifert, that's saving the country right now. And Every Life is the only major pro-life American diaper company. And so what would it look like if millions of Christians across America stopped funding woke culture of death, Gnostic dualism, and started supporting life and rebuilding a culture of life to honor our king? So. Everyone in here with kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, the whole thing, scan the QR code or go to everylife.com, use code SETH10 to get 10% off your order, and guess what? They donate back to pro-life ministries. So by buying diapers that you're already buying from people who slaughter children, you can buy them, support life, and support pro-life organizations. Wow, a culture of life. Lastly, we're inviting you to join the White Rose Resistance, okay? I'm rebuilding the White Rose Resistance. Uh, Rob, Rob McCoy calls me the Charlie Kirk of the pro-life movement. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you I've been sassy since conception, and you haven't seen me sassy yet. I'm trying to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit in like three, four, five years to punch back against the culture of death and to create a generations of Gideons who will walk out of the caves we've been hiding in to tear down the high places. Scan this QR code. I'm asking everyone to consider $35 a month. That's like three Starbucks drinks these days with Biden inflation. Um, and, and this is what is growing the resistance, and we're, we're growing resistance circles all around the country to mobilize the church into action. Because Bonhoeffer said, only in action is freedom. Only in action is freedom. To get comfortable with being uncomfortable and to steward what you've been given as a son or daughter of the king. If you join at $35 a month and you go to the foyer and you show your phone thingy, you get a free shirt today. You get to pick your free t-shirt. If you join at $70 a month, you'll join a culture war book club with yours truly coming soon, coming soon. A culture war book club where you get to hang out with me on Zoom. And if you join at $140 a month, you get our entire White Rose Resistance gear set, everything we make. How's that sound, all right? 
We need your help because Mackenzie, who divorced uh, Jeff uh, Bezos, made a $275 million donation to Planned Parenthood. Uh, that's kind of what we're up against. Um, so give to the White Rose Resistance. That's it. That's all I got. I'll see you on the battlefield and go out there and give them heaven. Thank you.